Welcome to the Everyday Lions podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lyons. So it's been a few weeks since I checked in. Uh, last Wednesday, we had the first live episode on Facebook via Zoom with Miriam Dow. On my end, I had a few sound issues, which I was really disappointed with. But luckily, you could still hear Miriam. Um, I'd just like to say, how wise was Miriam? Oh, had such an amazing story to tell. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, please head over to the podcast page on Facebook, just Everyday Lions Podcast, and you'll be able to uh, go back and check that out. I recommend it. Miriam was amazing. I'm really happy with how my pride interval training is going on Monday and Thursday. I'm up to eight runners. We have a really good culture at the moment. So if you are thinking about a training group, please consider Everyday Lions Pride Interval Training. You can check that out at www.everydaylions.org and then under the tab Pride Interval Training. Personally, it's been great seeing a few runners I coach achieve personal best. Uh, Especially a few of these runners have been stuck in a training rut and, and weren't enjoying the sport as they should have been. So to see them back having that passion is awesome. And it's just as good as any personal best that I've achieved in, in my running career. I start my prac soon, about five or six weeks. I'll be finished my diploma. I can't wait, I'll move on to the next chapter of my life and start university, which is uh, scary, but also really, really exciting. And personally, today I'm nine months sober. Uh, This hasn't been an easy journey by any stretch of the imagination. My mental health has been up and down during this period. I've experienced extreme anxiety, and some days it's just been hard just to get out of bed. Um, And there's been plenty of times where I've just thought, bugger it, I can't not do this. but a little bit of consequential thinking and talking to the right people uh, is luckily I haven't gone down that road of taking up drinking again. Also using mindfulness, this is my biggest tool. Uh, yeah, if it wasn't for this, it, I don't think I'd be where I am right now. Uh, it helps with everything, just calms my mind, helps with the, my alcohol cravings as well. Uh, finally, I'm raising some money for Dry July. I've reached just under $1,200. I have the goal of $1,500. If I do this, the beard comes off. Uh, So if you have any money, please head over to Brian Lyons Dry July and check out my hairy mug. And uh, I really appreciate your donation if you can afford that. Okay, this week's guest. This week's guest is Rod Nivani. I've known Rod for more than 20 years. He was a school teacher. Uh, He taught me, in fact, taught me for for French. Uh, Rod's a lovely guy. We talk about some of his running achievements, uh, his teaching career, and uh, the moment that he broke three hours for the marathon. I'm sure Rod would really appreciate if you reached out to him and told him how much you enjoyed this podcast. It's a ripper. Until next time. I've been your host, Brian Lyons, and this is the Everyday Lyons Podcast. Happy running.
Today's guest is Rod Viney. I've known Rod for a number of years. Rod is a school teacher, retired school teacher now though. Uh, he's been running for a long time. And when he's not running, uh, he's got lots of different activities that he, that he does. And we'll touch on a lot of these things. Are you there, Rod? Yes, I'm here, Brian. Good evening. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Good. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Yep. What's your day look like today? Um, it's been uh, busy, lots of different things. The main thing I do on a Monday is I go and visit my mum. She's out at Rubicon Grove at uh, the retirement village at Shearwater. I go and see her every Monday morning. Fantastic. Um, routine sort of things. Hmm. Yeah, great. And you're actually retired now, aren't you? Uh, yes, I've been retired coming up for five years. Yep. And I touched on that you're a school teacher. How long did you do that for? Uh, that was for 30 years. I taught... Uh, uh, the first year of teaching was 1979 and I finished in 2009. Great. And did you get up? Did you go out for a run today? Have you, have you managed to do that as well? Or? Oh, yes. I, I, uh, I always get a, a still short run on a Monday because I like to get out to mum's quite early. And, I'm, and uh, so, yeah, I, do, I did get a run in this morning. Great, great. How far did you go? Only five today. That's all right. That's enough. And... I, I tend to do shorter runs on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and do longer, harder runs Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, so every second day. Yeah, great, great. And how have you been coping with uh, COVID-19 going on? Has that, has that affected you greatly? And not me personally, but it has a sort of, a, it's affected our family in a way. Our, our two younger sons were both at university. Justin Hobart, he's doing third year engineering, and Theo had gone over to Melbourne, Uni of Melbourne. Uh, he's doing uh, theatre production and design, fine art. He'd only been there a month. And, and of course, they've both been home now since, you know, late March. Yeah, wow. Well, you must be proud of their, proud of their efforts. Are they, are they far away from qualifying? Well, Gus is third year, so he's got till the end of next year. So he's still got, he's got uh, the second semester this year plus next year. But Theo's just started. This was his beginning, so he's still got three years ahead of him. Wow. I, I, don't, know, I don't know where the time goes, mate. I, I just remember both of them in the back of your car just being two little boys reading, and now they're adults. Yeah, about it. yeah well, the youngest one's 19 now. Yeah, yeah wow, wow. <laughs> um, we're a running podcast, so we better talk some running. Hey, um, how did you get into the running? Um. Well, it was, it, it was um, like a lot of people, I suppose, have got into running because they're un overweight and unfit. I, I played footy right through my 20s, not at a high level, but I still played. And then I umpired for a couple of years when I first came up here, up here teaching. I did uh, uh, football umpiring. And then I got stopped doing that. And for about three or four years, I didn't do anything. And I was just getting you know, overweight and, and unhealthy. And I'd always been reasonably active. So at this stage, I was in the mid-30s. And I was up at, uh, I was teaching uh, with, a, with a friend, um, a, a colleague, he was about 10 years older than me, and he, he, after the Bernie 10 in 86, he said, I had Bernie 10 on Saturday, or Sunday. And I said, did you? I said, well, I should do, you know, set myself for that next year in 87. And I said, and I will, and I'll beat you. I, I, that's my, <laughs> that was my aim, to beat, beat Denzel, Denzel uh, Monday, who was a top chopper, so he was a fit fella. Um, I said, I'm going to beat you next year in the Bernie 10. So I started training at the end of 86 
And then a mate of mine, Steve Allen, who um, I still run with to today, he, he was uh, I used he was a mate through theatre, and uh, he said to me he said Alveston has a fun run every Christmas, just you know in December, just before part of their Christmas activities, come and do the Alveston fun run. So at that stage, I'd been running you know just a month. Well, I went and did the Alveston 5K fun run, and I was hooked. Just yeah. run with all the you know the hundred, <laughs> hundred other people all there together. Uh, I just loved it, and I never stopped. <laughs> yeah, very. Like as you mentioned, that's a very similar story that I seem to hear. Oh, do you reckon it was a runner's high, or just do you reckon? No, I think it was that this the um, the social aspect of it. All these people, all like-minded, all yeah. doing the same thing, and. What I, what I like about the running is it's a, you can, you're sort of running against other people, but at the same t but mainly you're all supporting one another to run against yourself and the road. And it was that yeah. double aspect, and I picked that up really soon, you know. And I yeah, so it wasn't so much that the runners high, which I think comes from you know a long run. It was just that being out there doing something with other people, and we all seem to be loving doing it. Yeah, great. And you mentioned that you that you play football. Running is an individual sport, but this is something that I, especially lately in this Devonport running community, it's it's as good as I've ever seen it the last three years. And there is that team, of or team atmosphere, I guess you could say, or or even aspect to it. Do you find that even more now than when you first started? Absolutely. So many friends, you know, just through running. Friends, you know, little young, these young kids, you know, sons of runners who are like, you know, Lockie and that, you know, the young fellas, um, right from them, right to people in their 80s. And, and you're uh, people that, are, that have done it tough all their lives, you know, low socioeconomic to the high flyers. Everybody's just friends together when you're running, you know. Yeah, no, it's really great. I, yeah. I, I, I think... Um, I do know that uh, you know you've, some of the people you've talked to, and yourself, and a lot of others have taken up running because of uh, mental uh, health issues and things, as well as physical things. And that's the other great thing about running: it, you, you're never lonely. You know, when you when you're running, you always got friends and people that care about you and support you. Absolutely, yeah. It's like having another family, mate. And I've been involved in other team sports, and I don't. I, I'm biased, but I, I just haven't had that that felt like I was as one and I don't know, it just seems like there's not much arrogance that goes on as well. So yeah. Right. And, and you touched on that you're a school teacher and so did I, uh, what was your favorite subject that you taught or, or what was the main subjects that you would teach people? Well, I was a primary school teacher. Uh, all of my uh, life, a career, sorry, all my career, I was a primary school teacher. Apart from two terms in 1998, which was when, as you know, I met you, Brian, I yep. filled in um, up at Reese High School just for the first and second term in 98. Now, that's my only time, my only experience at high school teaching. And, of course, I taught French. But, um, but all the rest of the time, I, I was a primary school teacher, so I taught right across the full range of subjects, mainly upper primaries, grade four, grade five, grade six. You taught French. I suppose you can you can speak a lot of French then. Uh, I'm I'm not fluent. I, I, I know I've you know all these years and I'm still not a really fluent French speaker. Yeah. I can 
I can get by a course, you know, and I can certainly read French a lot better, but uh, no, I'm not a fluent French speaker, mate, but I do love the language and, and yeah. culture in the country. And you've travelled there before as well? Uh, yes, yeah, been there about three times. Yeah. I'm president of the Alliance Francaise on the northwest coast. The Alliance Francaise is like a French club. It's the people okay. that love the language and the country. So we're mixing with French people and, you know, we're talking right. about French all the time. Yeah, it's great. Oh, amazing, amazing as well. So what other countries have you visited? In Did you, did you just stay in Europe or did you...? Uh, pretty much, Europe's my favourite uh, place to, uh, to to travel to. Um, my first travel went away, away when I went away the first time was '93. I was 40 then. I'd never been overseas until then, and I went for four months. Took the whole of third term, and I had a Eurail pass, so I saw as many countries as possible. Uh, went back with my wife Elizabeth after we got married in '98. Uh, that was uh, England, France, um, Italy, and um, so again, just Western Europe. So that's that's where most of the travel has been to Western Europe. We did have one sneaky little holiday to Hawaii two or three years ago, just for right. a point. So that, <laughs> that was lovely. But we yeah. both love the European history and culture. And so that appeals more than, say, South America or, or Asia. Yeah. And, and you mentioned your wife. I yeah. think I know the story of how you guys met. But can you explain that a little bit more as well? Yeah, well, it's interesting. We've, the first time we met was 1990 when we actually did a theatre production together. We were both in an, a, a musical at Alveston Rep. Well, Elizabeth was in it and I was working backstage, but we, she was just another person, you know, didn't really, you know, we didn't hardly converse. Um, then um, in, uh, she actually uh, turned up at night when I was teaching at Mind at a Primary in 1992 and we started teaching together. But again, she was just another staff person, you know. Um, she was just, we did, there was nothing, no spark or anything special. Yeah. But then we started to do some more theatre together the, the next two or three years. And uh, yeah, and it developed from there. So although I met her through theatre and then teaching, uh, we really sort of got together and fell in love through doing theatre together a bit later on. Fantastic. And, and the acting is, was that something that you've always done or was that something that came later? Uh, I got involved in it all pretty much straight away when I came back up to teach in 1979. My brother Peter, who's two years younger than me, he'd been involved with the Trade Drama Society and, and I went along as well because coming back up here, back up to the coast, I hadn't been here for nine years or something, it was nice to get involved with some people. So I got involved uh, with the Trade Drama Society. Then, um, and then when I moved over to Alveston a couple of years later, I went to Alveston Rep and well, then it just took off. From from then, from from nine, about 1978, uh, 79 through to well, for about 20 years, I was doing three or four shows a year. Wow. Something on, I'd be rehearsing one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was already in one that was going on. I, I loved it. I did yeah. you know, about 20 years. But then when we got married in uh, 1998, Elizabeth and I, and we had our two boys. Um, I, I was quite a light, late dad because when I got married, I was uh, 45. Elizabeth was 33, so yeah, had the boys. But anyway, once we had the kids, the little boys, I sort of, um, you know, that was my more my life then. I'd had that 20 years of being on my own, all the theatre. So I haven't done a lot in the last 20 years, but but Elizabeth and the and the three boys, her step, my stepson, and the other two, they've done heaps. So still very involved in theatre. Yeah. 
to be backstage doing something now or building sets or something like that. You're a very talented family. Um, mate, I've seen, I've seen a lot of shows from the Coral Society and, and other stuff you've done, and I've really enjoyed what you've all done as a family, so you should be really proud of that. Sometimes there's four or the whole five of us involved. Yeah. In one <laughs> Again, we were talking about teamwork. Well, theatre's another thing where you're a team, you know, you're all working yeah. together, but there's no competition, but you're t as a team. A bit like running together. And, and uh, to do it with your family, you've got that stubbly special. Yeah, well, that's brilliant. And I, I just know personally, so I, I'm not from a theatre background, but I'm from a street performing background and I just know that performance high or that feeling that you get, it's a very similar high to a running high. Do you, do you reckon yeah. it becomes addictive in many ways as well? Oh yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah, that feeling you get when you when you get that response from the audience, when you get that, it's just amazing. And especially you'd know this, you do so much time on your own practicing and with the theatre production, <laughs> you know, it's months of rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. When you actually get in front of that audience and you get some response, you just, well, I'm doing it, I can feel it now. This tingle yeah. that goes right through <laughs> your body. Yeah. Uh, the other great thing about theatre, and you'll know this too, Brian, that when you're up there performing, you're not, when you're performing, you're not Brian Lyons. Brian Lyons can be this shy, quiet, you know, retiring sort of fella, you know. But when you're up there performing, you're now that character and you, and it's completely different. You can do anything and say anything. Absolutely. It's like a superpower. Yep. And being on yeah. stage is similar. Yeah. yeah. And as you mentioned, I'm a very nervous, anxious person anyway. And when I performed, I was a totally different persona. I could just be anything I wanted. And, and, I, I, and I must say, your performances are brilliant. The way you work an audience and the skills you show um, in all. Oh, right? Thank you, mate. Thank you. And, and back at you, reacting. I've really enjoyed the stuff you've done. So, yeah, cheers, congrats. Mate. And I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to go back to the running. And you did talk about your typical training week. Can, can you explain to the listeners what that looks like at the moment? Yeah, well, I've got to take into account now that I've just turned 68, so I can't do what I, you know, used to do even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, um, yeah, I'll do I'll just do some light runs on a Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday. Sometimes I might have a Wednesday off for run because uh, Elizabeth works four days a week and has Wednesdays off. So sometimes uh, we'll just go for brunch and, you know, we might go and do some jobs or, you know, just hang out. Um, so I might even have Wednesday off. Tuesday or Thursday, I try and do a longer run and, and sometimes that might include some hills or some hill sprints or some uh, progression runs, you know, one fast with a minute recovery, two fast, two recovery, that kind of thing. Right. I mix it up like that. Um, Saturdays always used to be park run day, of course. Yeah. And I, <laughs> park run, I always did, that was a really hard 5K. I'd never just go for park run day and say, oh, I'm just going to take it easy today, Joe. I couldn't. I always had to do it flat out. <laughs> I'm sure you're not alone. <laughs> normally Saturdays, uh, then um, yeah, cost P triple CT, which I know we're going to talk about P triple CT day. So that could be anything from again from a five k to a you know twenty five k. Yeah, so yeah, that's my sort of week. But and when I was um, younger, I used to do a lot more efforts and a lot more tougher sort of stuff. Uh, I, even on Mondays after P triple CT, I'd go out and do a really hard interval run on a Monday because I could recover. I think yeah. the main thing I'm finding now is 
I can still go out and run hard for an hour, an hour and a half, but I can't back up the next day anymore. Yeah. I need okay. to. Yeah. Yeah, and that's has that been something you've found hard to deal with, or you just go, oh, that's a part of life type thing, or? Uh, it, it, I do. I do find it hard when I go out and I want to do, uh, you know, a certain time, a certain, a certain uh, time or distance, and I find it's hard and I'm struggling and. I get it's a bit annoying, but I've just got to come to terms with that. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned you touched on you do you still do a little bit of interval training? Um, do you think that is something that has has kept you moving? Like, do you think that that actually helps helps yeah, you moving? Absolutely. And and the other thing that's really good about the interval training, of course, is that your your, your heart varies in you know from when you're going flat out to when you're recovering. And that's what getting fitter is about, you know, that the changes in your heart. And it's also good for your health generally. So, yeah, I, I do find that that really helps. The other thing, it makes the run go much more quickly. If I go out and do uh, interval work uh, over 10 k's, or I go out and just jog out and back 10 k's, that always feels so much longer and so much yeah. more of a drag. The interval 10 k's is sort of over really quickly because you recover, you're, when you're running for the fast bit, you're really concentrating on that and, and keeping your form. And then when you're recovering, of course, that just flies, you know. The recovery. Yeah, because yeah, you're, yeah, you're tired. <laughs> That's it. So the whole thing all together seems to go much more quickly. It's yeah. really enjoyable, yeah. Right. And I remember you always being on the social media side of running, but you were using RunKeeper, I think, before... Yeah. This is before Strava became really popular. And only recently you've changed over to Strava in this last six months because of everything that's gone on. Yeah, How are you finding Strava? Do you enjoy that? Yeah. I, I, well, the run keeper, I only had about two or three other people that were using it. So there wasn't much sharing of runs and that kind of thing on run keeper. But I want, but I, but, uh, I, I want to keep using it because it's got you know, 10 or 12 years worth of runs on it. But the Strava, yeah, I've, I've switched over to Strava. So I do, I'm doing both. I actually have both on my phone and I send them both off. And, and great. Strava's great because, yeah, because of the running community, you all use it and you, you yeah. and the kudos and you can see, I can see a lot more, what a lot more people are doing. And there's a lot of, you know, stirring and fun. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's yeah. nice side of Strava that I really, it's really great. I wish I'd been using it a lot earlier, but I'll keep yeah. on Oh, I know for me, it probably, I think sometimes it probably kept me in the sport because because of that banter and, and wanting to get out and try and get a few CRs or or just even try and go up the list or whatever. So There was a friend of mine who's uh, used a Strava set the other day. He said, I think I might go off Strava for a while. And I said, I said, what do you mean go off? He said, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of getting a bit competitive. I'm trying to get further up the list of, you know, climbing <laughs> with more kilometres and... and <laughs> And I saw so and so's broken down and so and so's injured. You reckon, of course, they're trying to beat so and so. So it can be, a, you know, a negative if you take it too seriously. Yeah, and and Australia recently have started charging a little bit more for for what they offer. And I, my belief is, it's such a good platform that anything in this world, if it's good, it costs you money. And I. And I'm going to sign up. Like I, I don't have a problem with signing up. Have you, have you gone down that option as well, or? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I think I will though. It's only a couple of dollars a month. It's only yeah. hardly anything. Yeah, and it's a really good option. 
And when I read about the, the guys that have set Strava up, they've been going a long time and they said they've never actually really managed to make a profit out of it yet. And yet wow. they're, providing, they're providing all this great service to people. So we've probably got to support them and they can do more, you know, interesting things with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Like, oh, I think it's, it's just as good as a community because it's a social media community, which is, which is great. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Peachable CT. When did you actually join the Peachable CT? And for the people who aren't aware of Peachable CT, did you want to explain a little bit about the club as well? Yeah, okay. Well, the Peachable CT, and it, it, the full name of it is the Professional Cross Country Club of Tasmania, which tells a bit about its history because it began in 1968. And what it really began as a winter running club for the professional runners that ran the carnivals during the Christmas time, all those professionals that and used to run in our carnivals here but on the mainland and that it was something to keep them fit over the winter um, so they called it the professional cross-country club of Tasmania that that uh, that that was how it started out now by now it's really changed and now uh, it's 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 more for uh, people that that are uh, probably retired from other sports and things that just want to keep some companionship and stuff going so we've recently decided, this is just a little by the way, we, we're not calling it the full name anymore. We're just calling it PCCC Running Club because we don't want people to be turned off by the professional in the name and the Tasmania. It all sounds a bit wanky now. But because of the history of it, we didn't want to actually move away from the, 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 the name. But we're just you're going to use that acronym. So yeah. we get to 68 uh, for that purpose. And now... Over the years, since I've been running with it, um, the, the average age of the runners is going out and out, and the average times are going down and down. But it's still serving a really great purpose for a lot of people, you know, to go out and have companionship and friendship and run together on a Sunday. So, yeah. so I um, joined it in '87. As I said, it was the end. It was after the Bernie Ten in '86, where my colleague said he'd just run in it, and I ran over that summer. And then the next year, my friend Steve and, and a couple of other people that I'd met through doing other park uh, 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 runs, we decided we'd go along and join the PCCT. So that was 87. So I joined in 87 and uh, I've been running with them ever since. Well, when we can, of course. Yeah. And how many runs have you got up? Well, uh, last at the beginning of last year, before, sorry, beginning of, Last year, that's right. I had 690. I only had 10 to wow. go. Oh no! <laughs> 700. But I had I was I had trouble last year with a, a, an Achilles uh, um, injury. I had two months off, a uh, three months off, and then a month back, and then two months off. But I managed to get the 10 runs in, Brian. So so last year I had 10 <laughs> runs out of the 27. So I'm right now on 700. Brilliant. And have you worked at how many years of uh... Every Sunday, that is. Have you? <laughs> uh, well, if you if you think about it, um, uh, the cross country club, the PCCT runs twenty seven races in a year. Yeah. So if you're allowing for missing on average two a year because of maybe an injury mm. or uh, being away or something, it takes you four years to get a hundred. Okay, so four twenty five, so seven hundred twenty eight years. That's that's amazing. That's such an awesome achievement. Um, I think about uh, sixth or seventh in the all-time list. Yeah. I'll never, never catch the top two. Barry uh, Ling has is, is got uh, Baz has got about twelve hundred or something. Okay. Uh, a 
Ray Spinks, he's got about over a thousand. Uh, I mean, for me to go from seven hundred to a thousand, that's another twelve years. So yeah, I don't think I'll ever get there. But I'd like to get up to third one day. Oh, that's that's still amazing, an amazing achievement, mate. Like I got to a hundred runs, and I was super proud of that. I didn't race a lot, but I. I really love this club and I have so much time for the people in the club and what the club's given me and what the club gives juniors. I know a junior growing up, I, I got given some money a couple of times and I really appreciate that just when I first started out. They're just such a great family club. We did um, that too. We gave some money to the junior members of the club who went to this, you know, primary school cross country championships in New South Wales. So. Yeah, we want to encourage them and because they're going to be our future members one day. Yeah, absolutely. And and Ellen also touched, who was a previous guest on, on the podcast, about changing the name. And I think that's a brilliant idea, going going that direction. Um, yeah, because I think if people weren't aware, back in the day, you had to, if you were a runner, you had to choose whether you were amateur and not run for money or whether you were professional. And I think that's where that history comes in, which is fantastic history. But these days it sounds wanky, like I said. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We, we, we have heard over the years people saying, oh, I can't go and run with a professional cross-country club, you know, the professionals, because I'm not good enough. And we had to get overcome that because uh, we've got uh, we've got two, uh, an 80-year-old running in a club and several in the 70s. And uh, we're not... We're not uh, we, and mind you, we do have some wonderful young uh, runners as well in their late teens and twenties. But we're for everybody. That's the point. Yeah, and that's and I'm going to say it again. I've said it three or four times on this podcast. If you're listening, don't be afraid to go on the Peachable CT. You won't regret it. It's like Park Run. It's a beautiful community, and I've got I've got best mates out of life out of this club. And it's something that I'm what's well, dear to my heart, and I just hope that they never fold because they deserve people's support. One of the things for those that aren't aware that is a point of difference for us from say park run or fun runs or you know Bernie Ten or whatever is all our races are handicapped. So you can win, you can be a slow you know person like my age, you know, running five and a half minute per kilometre at sixty eight, and I can win a race, and that's terrific. You know, everybody's got a chance to win because it's handicapped. That's our yeah. point. Yeah, that's brilliant, and. Well, I actually left this off the list and I can't believe. So you've actually you've actually won the biggest race of the year. Did you want to tell the listeners about what this big race is all about and what that day meant to you and how the race unfolded? Okay. Yeah, well, the, um, the, the, the season, uh, sometimes it's the final race of the year, but it's usually in the last month and it's the culmination of the season, is what we just simply call the feature race. That's 17.6 kilometres uh, flat from Alveston, uh, from uh, Wynyard to Burnie. So it's a flat, fast 17.6. It uh, has, has the uh, prestige of being our greatest race. It also, it does have the most prize money as well. Um, but uh, for most people, the prize money is a secondary thing because it's like any, anything that you, you win that's got prize money attached. The prize money you know, goes, but you've got that trophy or you've got that sash or you've got your name on the board. So everybody just loves to win it for that prestige. The prestige. I actually ran second in it in uh, uh, 2003, 2003, I ran second behind Sam Ferguson. He caught me, we finished with a lap in of the, uh, we did then finish 
with a lap of the Westpark Oval, and he caught me just going in the gate. So I'd, oh, I'd cool. yeah, yeah, I'd <laughs> like to go with him. I, he ran right away and won by nearly half the lap. But anyway, um, so that was 2003. Uh, in 2015, I'd I'd uh, I'd sort of started the year. I was out. My handicap was out to where I was could be competitive, and I tried really hard to win a race. I ran second in the City of Devonport race, which is a 10k race in May, and I'd, I'd been close in a few others and had, hadn't managed to break through. So by about June, I, so it was about six weeks before the feature, I hadn't won a race. So I thought uh, uh, yet, uh, and I tried really hard and hadn't. So I said, right, I'm, I'm going to now accept myself for the feature race. So I went out and did lots of extra training specifically with the feature race in mind and um uh and uh well i was lucky enough to win it the, the week i was the week before the race the feature race was a race up at uh, guns plains 11 kilometers and that race um i thought uh, this is getting a, a, it's a bit like the feature race because it's flat and fast so i thought i'm going to this will be a good test to see how i'll go next week so I'd really put in really hard in that Guns Bones to 11K, and fortunately I won that. I was really pleased. And then I, when I was looking at during the week at the handicaps, and I thought if I can run about the same time as I did at um, the same kilometre rate uh, as I did at Guns Plains, if I can do that kilometre rate, I'll be probably somewhere around the front. You know, it'll probably be almost good enough. The only thing is, it's an extra six and a half k's. You know, eleven to seventeen and a half, half as much again. But anyway, I um, during the week leading up to that big race, and you'll know about this. You sort of taper. You sort of up until planes. Yeah. I've been training really, really hard, and so in the week leading up to feature race, I taper. Didn't I just did a couple of light runs and didn't do too much. So I freshened up, and. Uh, that must have been what did it, because in actual fact, I ran about seven or eight seconds a kilometre faster in the feature race than I did at Guns Plains. Yeah. And the, the person that was, I don't think there were some people that weren't shocked that I'd won because I'd won at Guns Plains. But I think everybody was, a lot of people were surprised, but none more than me at the time that I actually ran in the feature. I thought I'd needed to run about 94 and I ran just over 91 and, and I won by, had I won, run the 94, I still would have won, but I won by three minutes, which right. I have to say is a bit embarrassing to win, to win that race by three minutes, but it was just how it worked out, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it was, anyway, I was going to say, it was the highlight of my running career because loving the club as much as I do, you know, we, we're going to talk about the committee and stuff too, but loving the club as much as I do, and this is the main race that everybody holds in high esteem and some, you know, great runners have won it, but some really hard battling triers have won it. It's, it's, it's a really great race and it was the peak of, of, uh, of our club and for, so to me to win our peak race, I was absolutely stoked. No, brilliant, mate. I reckon good luck to you and well done. I, I'm very, very jealous. I would love a feature race win. Uh, but it hasn't to be, but that's, but that's the beauty of this sport and the handicap running is that anyone's a chance and it doesn't matter where you start. Yep, and you've got a lot more time chances at it than I'll have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's a thing. It's, it's never too over. Like, like, it's, like it's never too late. And, and I just remember this will stay with me. Uh, how emotional you were after the race and you could tell how much that meant to you. So that was, um, yeah, that was great to, to watch, to, to see someone and see how much that really meant to you. 
you know, I was absolutely stoked. Mind you, some of that emotion might have been through flogging myself 17 and a half Ks. That was only uh, four years ago, so uh, yeah. I was 64, yeah. Yeah, and you touched on that that was, that's your biggest running achievement. What, what other running achievements have you done that you're really proud of? Yeah, well, in actual fact, I suppose it was the most satisfying, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't the, the, the biggest achievement I've done. I think, the, interestingly, the, the biggest achievement, the thing that I'm most proud of, in 1993, when I said I went to Europe for four, for four months to travel around, what I did when I, I was going to uh, land over there in September, I had a look to see what marathons were on. I wasn't going to keep up my training while I was away, but I was really fit before I went. So I thought I'll have a look and see what marathons are on. It'd be really fun to do an international marathon. So there were two on the on the Saturday after I arrived. I flew in on the Monday. It was Berlin and Amsterdam. Well, Brilliant. I was actually to England. So Amsterdam suited better because it was just a quick hop across the strait afterwards. Berlin was a lot further away. So I so I entered and, and the Amsterdam Marathon and ran the Amsterdam Marathon. And I felt the satisfaction that I felt of going halfway around the world. I, had, I was just on my own. I travelled on my own. Didn't know a soul, nobody. Organising it all and going and running this marathon in this other, you know, foreign country halfway around the world and finishing that marathon, the feeling that I got, with that that's probably my most satisfying feeling that I've ever had out of running, I think, finishing right. the marathon. And you know about these big mar overseas marathons. Mate, and I, well, I can, I can align with what you said. I, I've travelled three times by myself. Um, I actually enjoy travelling by myself because I don't, <laughs> I don't think I don't. I can't travel with others because I, I just, yeah, I, I just, I just don't like it. So, uh, but it's an, it's an awesome feeling, isn't it? It's a brilliant feeling. One lovely thing that happened on my, um, my the, this was, this was the, when I went over, this was before Elizabeth, but my girlfriend at the time, um, which didn't last long after we got back from that trip, I must say. But anyway. <laughs> you soon find out, don't you? <laughs> she did me a, a sign that I put on the back of my running singlet that said, I'm Rod from Australia. Oh, and unreal. We're on the back of my singlet. <laughs> I was starting to struggle about the 30K mark or something. <laughs> Dutch fella came along on his bike and he was started barricading for me. Come on, Rod. Come on, Rod. You know. And it's so good. Slow down a walk. He'd say, "Come on, you can do it." You know, come on. And he he supported me the last ten k. Yeah. And after I finished, he came and found me, and we hugged like, you know, long lost mates. Oh, that's so nice. And, oh, and I yeah, it was wonderful. I was I was all in tears and emotional. Yeah. Of course, just the forty two k's have hard running. Of course, that's all. <laughs> but it's but it's it's just it, it's it's draining, like because. I I don't know about you, but like you spend so much money to get there, and then you fly all this way over, and and there's, and there's a lot of stress involved with that too. Like, oh gee, I hope I don't run bad. But and when when it does pull off, it's an amazing feeling, like you said. It's a bit different for you though, because you were going specifically for the runs. This was just at the start of my you know four months travelling around Europe, and um, and so after it was over, you know, I had a lot to still to look forward to, and I was. Yeah. No pressure on me at all, really. It was just for the experience. Uh, the other thing that I was really, I'm really pleased with is my best marathon run. I, I, as of, as of, at the time, it was in 1988, 
And, and at the time, there were lots of really good distance runners around and wasn't anything sort of special. But now I look back and see what, when people are struggling now to run that time, when you heard uh, you Benny Brockman, who's a brilliant runner and does these great long runs, saying on your podcast the other day, I listened to it, saying, oh, he just wants to get to three hours, you know. And I realised how I'd sort of downplayed it a little bit. I, I ran two hours 57. and. Yeah, and now when I look back, I think you know that that was that was all right. <laughs> oh, better than all right, mate. I think <laughs> I think ninety nine point nine percent of the population would love that time. Yeah, yeah, no. So I'm very very happy with that. Was ninety eight. A few years later, I ran two uh, three hours and um, eighteen seconds. <laughs> oh wow, wow! And and what sort of training were you doing? back then when, when you did break three hours, was what's the difference, you reckon? Um, I, I did a specific uh, program. I just looked on the, um, on the internet, looked up um, uh, uh, training for a marathon, marathon training. Yeah. Sort of, sort of a, and it, when I, uh, and it, you probably know this, when you look it up, it sort of said, it asks you a starting point, you know, is it eight weeks away, 12 weeks away, six weeks away, what's your current time, blah, blah. So. Um, I think I started at about, you know, eight or 10 weeks and I put in my 10K time and stuff. And then it sort of gave me a program that consisted of things like a fast 5K this day and a, you know, you know, a, a stride for eight this day. And then over time, you're gradually a lot building your longest run. So I think I ended up with a long run of, you know, 30 or something like that. So anyway, that's why I just followed the, I just followed that program, mostly on my own. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and it all came to fruition. Yeah, it's a good point you touched on those specific training. Um, I think some people forget this. They do everything right, but specific to the event. So, I don't know, a good example is Gold Coast Marathon. So, it's flat as a tack. You probably don't know, need to be running that many hills in training. So, that's a good example of specific training. It's a great thing that you do with your everyday lines too, though, Brian, because someone will go to you and uh, and, you know, you work with them based on their what their current situation is to achieve Absolutely. what they want to achieve, and you write the program to get them from to A from A to B, and because you, your experience and knowledge, and a person can't you can't do that on your own, and you can't just go out and have a jog each day to achieve these things. But yeah, having a program is great, but that's what you do. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. oh. Podcast not about me, but I think like if you are listening, get a program because it just it will motivate you to get out the door too, and you know from day to day what's what's going on, what what I need to do. Yep, that's that's right, and it ties you to it. You feel committed. You you put it on your fridge door, and you see, well, this is what I've got to do this morning, or this is what I've got to do tomorrow, and it commits you to it. Absolutely, yeah, and what were you? And and you touched on tapering. Uh, when you did your marathon training, were you were you like a two to three week taper person, or did you freshen up the week before? Because everyone's so different. Um, uh, probably only uh, for that particular one. I followed the program, and I can't remember exactly now, but I think pretty sure I had a two week taper, <coughs> something like that, with not a lot in the um, in the last week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Couple of easy. I think I might add some stride throughs on the Tuesday and a cup, you know, Wednesday off a light run on Thursday or Friday or something like that. So, yeah. But no, not a long taper because I wasn't sort of at the level of like two hours thirty like you are, or two hours twenty-five. I wasn't at that. I was just trying to get through 
and, and most of my marathons were the PCCC marathons. They were just another race. So the previous Sunday, I did whatever that race was. And the next week after the marathon, I'd be doing what that race was. It was just part of the, part of the program in the season. Yeah, great. And I guess what I'm noticing with the PCCC marathon, they're struggling with numbers. It's so funny, like... We're booming here at the moment, um, but number for, for like the marathon and, and that sort of thing, it seems to be people don't want to run that distance anymore. If they want to do it, they want to go to a bigger city to run it. Do you think yeah. that that's the issue? Yeah, that's, that's right. It, we have lots of people, you know, even with half marathons, half marathons and things. So, so I'm going to go and do the one in, you know, the big one in Lonnie or I'm going to Melbourne or I'm going to the Gold Coast or I'm going to do the Hobart. Cabri marathon or half marathon or whatever. Uh, we I don't I don't know what it is. But I think it's the, well I think it's that uh, the fact that it's a big occasion with lots of people. Where our marathons, even in the heyday, we only had forty people in them, and they're yeah. also uh, forty or fifty maybe, and they're also handicapped as well. So it's not like you're starting at the start with you know hundreds of people. There isn't that atmosphere. It's quite different. Um, and yeah, that's, it is. If that's probably you know what what the problem is and unless we want to change and and try and organize a marathon along hobart and launceston's and and uh and the ross one that kind of thing unless we want to do something similar then um we'll, we'll continue to be the same but and the yeah. thing we've been is we should just keep it as our handicap marathon for those that want to do it but yeah. once one thing we, uh, we, regard, we had intended to do this year and in future years, on the marathon day up until this year, we'd always just had a 5K race at about 10.30 for those that weren't doing the marathon, just so there'd be people there for the, when the marathon is finished and be part of the day. But this year, we were actually going to have a, 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 a team event where uh, a team of four actually did the marathon course. So the, it's, like, it's, a, it's a 10K out and back twice. So there were actually, as well as the marathoners out on the course, there would be all the team runners out on the course. Right. And it would it gave it, it would have given a bit more atmosphere and it might have encouraged a few of the marathoners to think, well, I'm not going to be lonely out there and only see 10 people. You know, there's going to be lots of people. So yeah. We didn't get to do it, of course, with uh, COVID-19, but we'll see how it goes next year. And that's... um. But this is this is stuff that you can look at and experiment with, and and I just hope it can pull off with the club and and you get more numbers in that event because Greg and Diane Woodhouse are such good supporters of it. Fantastic. I mean, they they supported it through their original real estate business, but since they've retired, they just do it personally now out of the yeah. goodness of their hearts. They're wonderful sponsors. Yeah, and. Did you want to tell the listeners what your role is actually on the committee of the Peaceable CT as well? Yep, for sure. I, I, this is my second stint on the committee. I uh, went on the committee back in the uh, in the early to mid nineties. I was on for for a few years until I got married and had the children, and then uh, I sort of gave it away. But um, when I retired, I thought I'm going to have a lot, you know, more time for, for things now, and uh, so I joined the committee again back at, in the at the end of 2015. Um, and uh, I've been on it ever since. Well, it coincided with the top, with Rick Ferguson uh, retiring from the committee. Rick had been the secretary and the publicity officer since early 2000s. And, um, and so I, I took on those roles. So usually it, is, it, it can be two separate people, but it's, it actually fits in quite well 
for the secretary and the publicity officer to be the same person as Rick was. So I did both those roles. So as secretary, you just well, obviously you you do the. What, I think both people know what a sec, the secretary's job is. The publicity officer job is really great. I get to uh, co uh, to uh, coordinate with the uh, newspaper the stories that go in previews and and uh, and then the, the results afterwards. I also look after the uh, uh, the um, Facebook page and our website, so I look after all that that side of it as well. So yeah, so that's what I do. That the secretary, secretary and and publicity officer, and um, we have a we have a great committee. Everybody works really hard and works. We share out things like jobs like uh, race managers. So I have I certainly at some races where I'm the race manager. So my job to set the course up and organise the actual race on the day, and um, and uh, yeah, we all take turns in doing that. So. There's, there's quite a few different things that we have to do, but yeah, that my role is particularly secretary and publicity officer. Mm. I, and I enjoy reading the stories, mate. You've got, you've got a, a, a detail with the writing, so uh, it's really good. Yeah, they're not easy to do because they um, they cut them back often. So oh, do they? Yeah, yeah, and often they cut back at the bottom. So you've got to try and put all the important stuff you really want to have in there in the first part. Yeah. <laughs> That won't matter if it doesn't get in. <laughs> like it to, but, but good. Good. Uh, what's good is now with the, with the website, um, whatever the whole thing that I write up for the preview and then the re, the report after the race, all goes on the website. So people can read the whole thing, even if right. it's not a paper. Not a lot of people read paper these days. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm the same. That's where I read it. I just go straight to the website. I, I think. Usually, I've I've lost all my credits with the newspaper anyway because I, I yeah you know you you only get two or three articles a week or something stupid. So yeah. over the years you've been involved with the Tasmanian Education Union. Can you um explain what role that you've had involved in that and what they actually do? Sure. Now, if people have been paying attention, they would have heard me say that I finished I taught until twenty <laughs> and and but I didn't retire until twenty fifteen. End of 2015. Uh, what I did in those six years uh, was working for the Australian Education Union. So uh, the Australian Education Union is the uh, the union for people that work in public education. Um, so in TAFEs and and schools and colleges. Um, and I'd always uh, been interested in it. I'd way back when I started teaching, I was off, well, through my teaching years, I was often the the uh, union rep in my school. Um, uh, partly. My interest came about from the industrial side, so looking at you know, wages and conditions, but also what I really love about the Australian Education Union, it fights really hard for public education. It's the, sort of the, the, uh, the lobby for public education funding and, and things. So I really like that aspect too, because I'm a really strong believer in, in, real, in you know, free uh, and, and really good quality public education for everybody. So, that was how I got involved originally, and then from from the early 2000s, um, uh, I got I went on to the AEU Council, which meets three or four times a year and is the major decision making body. And then I got on to the AEU Executive, which is just about a dozen people that meet fortnightly and sort of like it's like the board. Uh, anyway, so in 2009, uh, the previous uh, occupant of the Northwest. Um, uh, uh, organised the position, retired, and I applied for that and got that. So I was the Northwest organiser, which meant that I actually went to all the schools and colleges and TAFE campuses 
uh, in the northwest region. That includes West Coast and King Island as well. So I'd go and uh, give simple advice or assistance or direct people with where they could get help. My role was to uh, catch up with new teachers or, and um, or teacher assistants. You know, of course, we cover all, all workers apart from the uh, the school attendants. Um, my job was to sign them up to the union, tell them what we could offer and what we could help them. Yes. So, so it was a real people job and I loved it. You know, going into schools and talking with, with people and helping people, which was really great. Um, and that includes any issues between staff and principals. I'd often be like the one that sort of not solve it, but be there as a sort of support person and, you know, let them work their way through. It was a real people job. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it very much. But it was great to travel to all the Northwest Coast, to all the schools and colleges. Terrific. Yeah. And, and among those, um, we have a terrific, really terrific workforce in those public education facilities. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I can really strongly uh, recommend, you know, all the schools and colleges, they're great. Yeah. I, mean, I know I'm biased, but I've seen it, you know. Yeah. From, you know, from that level, yeah. Yeah, and I, oh, I can align with you with this one. Both my parents are previous teachers or teachers uh, taught in the public um, side of things. And, um, but it's, it's people like you doing this work behind the scenes and that, that makes all the difference. And it's just not only that, you guys have rallies to, to, to get pay rises and that sort of stuff as well, don't you? Oh, uh, yes. There's very much the industrial side of it as well. Whenever the... Uh Whenever we're coming up for a new agreement, uh, it was part of my role was to get in the schools and find out what people wanted, what changes they wanted, what conditions they were lacking, what things, or to put to them things that other people have suggested and what did they think, and then try and activate the members to push for the things they wanted. You know, yeah. it's not a situation, it's a bit like with our running club, going back to PCCT, people would understand this, if, if it was just only left to the committee to come up with ideas and changes and do things, it wouldn't be very good. What it needs is all the members to think about things and just, you know, yeah. say, that. How, about, how about this happens? Well, that's, that, it's all that collective thinking. Well, it's the same with the, the union. It's not just we're union officers that, that came up with the things and caused the change. It really needed to come from the members. So that was part of my job was to go into schools and get those, those ideas. And then to rally the troops, you know, to get them to go and yeah. maybe go out and, you know, stand on a street corner and wave a sign or ride a <laughs> those kinds of things. Just yeah. Like, just like any union sort of fires up their members to get what they want. Yeah, and, and you're the perfect man for the job, mate. You're very, very approachable. I, yeah, I think, I think they chose the perfect man for that. So you're not in that role now, then you've stepped aside? So yeah, 2015 I finished. So that I yeah. yeah. In 2015 I did part time and with the uh, the person who took over from me. So we worked together for a year to sort of because you 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 learn all the so much stuff. So it's really handy to work on the job with him and pass it on. And so Jared Ennis now took over from me. Yes, okay. Yep, you'd know. Yeah. Yep. So uh, he's doing that now, and I finished at the end of 2015. Mm. I'm gonna head. Back to the running again. Again, um, what's one piece of advice that you would give a newbie runner, or even someone who's been at it for a lot of years? Okay. Um, I, I thought about you know um, because I'd heard you ask the others about advice. Yeah. But I think the best advice I'd 
I'd, first, I'd just like to reiterate what some of the others said, and that is enjoy your running. It's all about enjoyment. If you're not enjoying it, don't, don't go out and flog yourself and make yourself sweat the stage where you're hating it. You've got to enjoy it. That includes training as well as the racing. But the most important thing I think I'd say to somebody, especially it's really relevant now uh, as I'm getting older and, and a lot of members in our club are getting older, is to listen to your body when you're out there, when you're out there training and running. Listen to your body. If, it, if you go out for a run, and, I've got, and, and I'm talking to myself here too, yeah, <laughs> uh, and, I want to, and I want to do something or other, and then I think I just don't feel right today, it's just not there, there's nothing wrong with cutting it back or going home or whatever, or, and certainly there's nothing wrong with even having a day off. I, I think yeah. in all, even in the most intensive, intense programs, um, a day off is an important part of the program. Yeah got to have time to recover. So my advice would be listen to your body and don't be afraid to have a day off. Don't feel guilty about it. If you say, no, I'm not going to run tomorrow. I need a day off. Don't feel guilty. It's part of your training and your program as much as going and doing an interview session. Perfect answer. And this is what I try and stress to the runners that I, that I look after at the moment. Uh, it's my one regret in my running career. I was a slave to the training diary and a slave to the kilometres and I wish I had had days off now because I don't think I would have been probably as injured or burnt out as much as I am probably right now. So When you've had yes. when people that can't run because they're injured, it makes you realise that just being able to run, even just slowly, is far better than being not able to run. So It's a gift, mate. It's a yeah. gift. And, yeah, we should be so grateful for that gift. Absolutely. My yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And your brother being a teacher, yep. and he's actually taught me English, maybe, I think. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm maybe grade eight. Uh, and your wife's still a teacher? Uh, yes. Because she's 12 years younger, she can't retire for a few years yet. No. <laughs> yeah, she's teaching at Devonport Primary School four days a week. Yeah, and what's it like at the Christmas dinner table? Is it is it teaching talk or is it do you get away from that? <laughs> uh, get away from it. You, often um, we might, there might be a, a very general talk along the lines of, oh, what grade have you got next year? What class? Are you, what what are you doing? You know, in general terms. But no, we try not to get into nitty gritty detail because you know that there's a, I've known over the years spouses and family. <laughs> of teachers who won't go to social events with them because they say, all you're going to do is talk about <laughs> kids at school and that other teacher <laughs> these issues. So no, it's best, best not to talk about it. And yeah. The thing is, though, we, we can all talk with one another. I mean, I never get, if Elizabeth wants to come home and, and, and have a real moan or, or cry on my shoulder, you know, literally speaking, uh, uh, figuratively speaking, I mean, uh, if she wants to, you know, that's fine, you know, and the same with Pete. We can do that with one another. But no, Christmas dinner, mate, family, yeah. lots grandchildren, grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, being a teacher is not just not an easy job. You guys put in so much work behind the scenes that no one, be, that no one wouldn't <laughs> even know about. <laughs> it would be all right, mate. It's your kids. That's, schools would be wonderful if it wasn't for your kids. <laughs> No, mate, I'm, I'm not going to go down that track because I might annoy a few people, but... Um, and I'm saying that completely, completely and absolutely tongue-in-cheek. Kids are wonderful, and that's why I went into teaching. I went into teaching 
because I love kids and I've really enjoyed it. And you'll find that 99% of teachers do it for the kids because you don't do it for the, you know, for all the pressure and, and all the, yeah. the, the stuff that comes from you from above. You do it for the kids. So kids are wonderful. And you were a brilliant teacher, mate. I remember having you grade, grade eight, so 98, and I really enjoyed your class. So, and that's the main thing. You made it interesting. And I think that's what kids want is interesting class. And that's what it was. You guys were doing that as, a, as an option. And, uh, and I, so I wanted to make it enjoyable and fun. And, and it was only quite a small class, if I remember. We, we did have a yeah. nice time. We had a good time. And I've only got good, good memories of you, mate. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Luckily, we're still friends today. So that's good. <laughs> um, I suppose I'm going to touch on a bit of a, contra not controversial, but uh, I know you love your politics. Why is this? Uh, well... I think it's part. It, from what I've, a lot of what I've said, you could you probably, you probably gather some of it. It's all about making the world a better place. It's politicians who make the decisions that govern so much of, of what goes on in our lives and what you know what's available for people. So I, I've sort of taken interest just from that more from that point of view. I want the world to be a good place and people to be happy and successful. And uh, you know, we rely on the, our government so so much you know, to make that happen. I know people have got to, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to pass all responsibility, personal responsibility off people. We have so much of that ourselves. But there's so much that uh, governments can do to assist and help people. I think that's partly where it's come from. I've been following reasonably closely, but I must say I have never um, been a member of any political party or, or done any uh, lobbying for any politicians or anything like that. It's more... Uh, an external sort of interest, yeah. Yeah. So I to write the odd letter to the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, no, mate. Oh, luckily we live in a nation where, where we're pretty well. You know, we're free to say what we want to say, or, or you can, you know. Yeah. And, and that's a, I think it's that famous saying that I can't think of it. You'll probably be able to help me here, Kennedy. Do what your nation. What is it? What's that? Oh. It's his famous thing. So. Don't ask what your nation can do for you. Ask what you can do for the nation. Something like that. Yeah, and I think every time we go to the ballot box, that's what we have to be doing. Like, what can our, what can politician do for me? What this is why I'm voting for this person. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and and the number of people that complain about having to go and vote. Oh yeah. You know, there are people in the world who die for the right to vote, and people. Well, they do. They do. Literally die. Yeah. And people who take it for granted. We should never do that. We should be so grateful. Absolutely. Brilliant. Can't say anymore. We are very lucky. And, and the teaching, are you missing that now or you're quite content being retired? Uh, very, very content being retired. Yeah, I've got plenty of, plenty of things to keep me busy, keep me occupied. And uh, I, I do, however, um, when I go into town, I often take a coffee up to Elizabeth and, and spend a bit of time with the kids in the class. And I'm also uh, have been in the last two or three years, or gone away when they've gone on excursions. I've gone as parent help, and those times that I actually spend with the kids, I really love. Um, but actual teaching, no, I don't miss it. I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, could I ask what you disliked about the job? Is that okay? No, I, I can't really. I didn't really dislike it. There, were, there wasn't a lot to dislike about it. I, I think the. It's still happening today. Um, I think the worst thing about it is that lots of times teachers aren't allowed to just get on and plan lessons, teach the kids. 
there's always um, assessment to do and so much uh, training and extra stuff that the government always plonks on for teachers. Um, so if they were just allowed to get on with teaching, <laughs> I yeah. think love it a lot more. It's a lot of that extra stuff. The other thing is things change all the time. They're not always for the better. Often it's driven politically. You'll get a new minister, education minister will come in and you'll want to make his, his or her mark. So they'll chuck a lot of that stuff away and change things and bring in new things. And uh, you know, teachers have got to keep coping with change all the time. And that's, yeah. that's a, so it's, it's more system imposed things that the teachers dislike. The actual time spent in the classroom with the kids, working with and working with other colleagues, that's all good. Oh, you're good at your job, mate. And and yeah, it's. Well, I can't say much more about. It. I've got an insight of the things that are not my parents. But just uh, on your mum did a brilliant job, mate. She was a teacher assistant and and as a as a late comer went and did teaching, and that takes a lot of guts. And she did a bloody good job of it. So you know, good on her. No, she's, yeah, she did. Oh, we're, we're super proud of her. I mean, she went back to uni at 48, 49, and, um, yeah, uh, I've seen her in action, and she's, yeah, she loves her job, and she's brilliant at it and does right. so much work outside the hours of uh, nine to three. But <laughs> um, I think most teachers do. Um, but, yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, so what has running given you? What What's the, the number one thing? I think it's this feeling of well-being that um, uh, I, I'm a lot fitter and healthier than probably 90, 95% of 68-year-olds in Devonport. I, and I feel really happy with about that. You know, I'm not, I don't take any medications. Uh, I know there's a lot of luck involved. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of luck involved in still being healthy and, and not taking medications especially. But um, I think what it's given me is this feeling of hey, you know, I'm alive and I'm well and I'm going to live for a long time. It's really feeling a satisfaction of being well. And that's important, especially with, you know, boys. You know, I've got my kids are at, my, at, at what most people my age would be their grandchildren's age, you know, uh, 19. And so it's important for me to stay young. I want to see them married. I want to see them with kids, you know, and grow up, get in their careers. What it's given me is this feeling of well-being and fitness and health. Um, but also all the wonderful friends, you know, that, that we call over over the all the time I've been running, the number of people that you come across that become your friends and your mates, and even they're just running mates, even just people to say hello to on the track. It's wonderful. You're feeling a community, so running's given me that as well. Perfect, absolutely brilliant. Uh can agree with everything you said there. We're in the best sport in the world, and and yeah i just wish more people would take it up which is happening now which is great <laughs> that's a simple sport to do you yeah. know 150 dollar pair of shoes and you're away you're set yeah exactly you can, you can just walk out the front door and start you know it's the most simple sport to do and well, we're made so much yeah well we're made to run as humans i mean what's the first instinct when you find any little bit of trouble. If you can run, you'll run. Yep, absolutely. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's a generational thing from thousands and thousands of years ago. So, so we're made to run. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I guess what I wanted to, to touch on, you, you've mentioned that you're 68. 
Uh, and you've achieved some some awesome results in the running. What else would you like to achieve before before you give it away? And and do you see an end mark? Is it like I'll give it away because I can't run? I'll give it away because that's that's enough. I'll give it away when I can't run anymore. I say, yeah. I say, you know, what's your goal in running? My goal in running is to run as long as I can. I see people like Ken Williams, who's turned eighty, who's still running. You know, and there's oh, that's in our club. But I know there are a lot of people that are older than that, uh, that run masters and things. Um, so I can't see why I can't run for another 12 or 15 years. At, at some level, um, I'd still like, just like to be able to keep running because uh, just to get out there with everybody else. Even if, yeah. I, even if it's going down the park run and, and taking an hour to walk it, you know, like, that, that'll be fine. As long as, it, just keep involved. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that's that's where I'm at right now. Is I will go back to running eventually, but I've got to be I've got to be ready to do that. But the community thing, and I can't wait for Park Run to start so I can just walk it or something. Just because I see some familiar faces, and I can go for a coffee afterwards. Yeah, of course. There's that social side of it's really important. But yeah. while you're not while you're not running, you're still getting a lot of satisfaction out of running by helping others. So there's yeah. always something you can do. Uh, if, it, if, if the worst came to the worst and I got a bad injury and couldn't run, I could still go to Park Run and volunteer. I'd still be involved in it. I'd still go to the PCCT committee. We've got people on the committee like, like uh, Malcolm um, who doesn't, doesn't run. So there's always ways you can be involved and still be part of it. But I want to be able to run as long as I can, yeah. Yeah. And those people are the, uh, are the superstars of our sport, mate, because uh, we don't have volunteers or people doing this stuff. Events do not happen. No, correct. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, I guess closing out today, mm -hmm. uh, what are some values that, that you live by in your life? Okay, um, quite simple really. I think uh, trying to be the best person you can, trying to be kind to people and, and do the right thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person, I, I don't, and I don't like... Um, uh, I don't think you need to be told how to act and how to think and what to say and what to do uh, um, by, by religious bodies. Or, uh, but people are welcome to that if they want to. And, you know, I, I, I completely say people can be free. But I think you just need to know in yourself what's the right thing to do, how you treat people, how you act, how you behave. Think about your words and your actions. So um, that's what I try to do is to, if I ever think I've upset anyone, or hurt anyone's feelings, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really upset about it. And I've got to go and sort it out if I, and find out whether I have or whether, if I have accidentally, fix it. Uh, I'd never do it on purpose. So yes. that was, be kind to people and, you know, and be the best person you can. Do the right thing. Another thing that is important in my life is, is a saying I heard a long time ago, I always remember, life is not a rehearsal. You know, we're, we're not here practicing getting ready for anything. This is it. <laughs> this yeah. is our shot at it. So <laughs> we've got to enjoy the, enjoy our time, enjoy our day, make the most of the, every moment because you never know what's around the corner. Um, you know, uh, and uh, uh, and but at the same time, still plan it, plan for the future, look forward to things down the track. Yeah. Yeah. You need you need to have something to get out of. Bed and that planning is everything. Uh, 
Yep. But we just don't know. I think recently this last, I don't know how many weeks it is now since uh, COVID-19 has been going on, but since March or whatever, I think, I think a little bit more gratefulness maybe has, has probably entered people's life. Do you think that's a fair statement? Absolutely. And I tell you, it hit me the other day. I, did, I was doing a run on a, on a wet, squally, windy day, and I was right down the peak, down at the end of uh, Coles Beach, uh, at the end of Coles Beach, where you go right along there where the rifle club used to be and start to turn up the Don River. And there was this westerly howling at me. And I just, I just, I, I just had this spiritual moment where I thought, my God, I'm so grateful that I'm here. I'm, this, is, this is brilliant, actually, to be out here and running. And I just had this, this a moment of feeling so alive and so grateful in this horrible yeah. Yeah, and, and so that really struck me. But but you're quite right. People, I think, are, are thinking about um, what there is to be grateful for, rather than moaning and groaning and being sorry for themselves. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're quite right. Mate. Oh, I was just chatting to my friend Amy, and and we were just grateful for the fact that we could sit in a coffee shop and have a coffee. Like it's so simple, but it felt awesome. Yeah. Yep, when you're doing the things you can't do that you really want to do, and then you can, you should, we shouldn't ever take it. <coughs> excuse me, we should never take it for granted, should we? No, no, that's it. We just don't know. It's fleeting. It's yeah. Yeah, never know what's around the corner. No. Beautiful. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that has been Rodney Viney. Thank you so much, mate, for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So thank, thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. It's been lovely, as always, chatting with you. Cheers, mate. I'll okay. catch you later. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Podcast listeners, that was Rod Viney. I think you'd agree that Rod is a really intelligent guy and has had lots of life experience over his years of running. I'd like to wish Rod all the best with his continuing retirement and hopefully he gets stuck into a few more theatre productions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let Rod know. Uh, In other news, can you please leave us a ratings on iTunes if you are enjoying the podcast because we'll go up our little subject of sport. Also, we have Everyday Lions podcast singlets available. So if you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to strut in one of those out in the running track, head over to www.everydaylions.org and check those out. I'm Brian Lyons. This has been the Everyday Lions podcast and happy running.